Welcome to our podcast. I'm David Kramer coming to you from Northern California. And I'm Dave Blasco from Arizona. Dave and I have been friends since the early 80s when we were college roommates. And we have finally found a medium to share our wisdom with the world, or at least our opinions. Between us, we have two engineering degrees, two master's degrees, an economics degree, and over 60 years of work experience. We're making this podcast together to try and help each other, and hopefully you, the listener, save money. So Dave, do you have any follow-up from our electric car episode? I think the main thing I was thinking about is if you're thinking about electric car, uh, as I said in the podcast, I own a Nissan Leaf. It's probably the cheapest practical electric car out there. You can get a great used car, sometimes in less than ten for $10,000. Take the plunge, go buy it, drive in the carpool lane. If you don't like it, you can probably sell it a year or two later and probably sell it for very close to what you paid for it. So I'd say nothing should prevent you from taking taking the leap and go out there and grab one of them. I, I agree. Um I also wanted to note that I think since we spoke, the House of Representatives introduced the New Green Deal, which calls for 100% zero emission vehicles by 2030 and 100% fossil fuel-free transportation by 2050. I think that's a bit of a pipe dream, but I think it indicates where the nation is going to go. I think so. I think I think we're going to see electric electric cars is pretty amazing the change in technology just over the last say five or six years and as back battery power becomes more practical and cheaper and, and more dense uh, I think it'll make a lot more sense for a lot more people all right so for today's episode we're going to talk about something completely different we have a guest today another college friend of ours with another mechanical engineering degree but on top of that he also has a law degree um, Mr. Steve Royster, who is an employee of the federal government, which means he has some very current experience in not getting paid and how to figure out how to live on a budget emergently. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Dave. Hello, Dave. How are you? We're doing great. Glad you could be here with us. Okay. Well, I just want to let you know that I'm really happy. It's been years since we've talked. I'm happy to be talking to you from the floor of my parents' basement out here in Virginia. So and you're still living in your parents' basement? Luckily, I don't. I've progressed beyond that point. But it's important to know that I am in Virginia, which is I commute daily to my job for the federal government. And as a result of that, I was affected by the recent shutdown, the furlough that resulted from the government's inability to agree on how to pay its bills for work going ahead. I'm happy to share my experiences with you, just personal experiences, and answer any questions with two caveats. First, and Dave Kramer, who came from the inside the Beltway here in the D.C. area, is familiar with this. Sometimes we in Washington think that the whole world revolves around what is going on within the halls of Congress and politics. And I'd be really interested personally to let, if you let me know what is apparent from the world outside the Beltway and what is just a little bit of navel-gazing on the part of us here. The second, and it's not that my lawyers have advised me or anything, but I just want to emphasize that these are just my personal observations and I want to relate my experience and advice in light of the federal shutdown. And I have a few references to facts every now and then. 
but this is not an official statement. You can't construe it as policy. It's just three guys from college who are sharing their opinions and shooting off their mouths. We'd never let facts get in the way of our podcast. I'm going to like it here. Just out of curiosity, Steve, do you drive an electric car? I have never driven an electric car. I'm sorry. I heard the first podcast and I'm tempted. We have uh, our electric cars have privileges to use the high occupancy vehicles here in the Northern Virginia area. And it would probably save about 10 minutes off my commute. So Steve, um, I, I was interested in the shutdown because uh, my mom worked for the federal government her entire career. She's She's been since retired a long time, but she was never impacted because she was always deemed essential personnel. And as I was getting ready for this podcast, we were talking yesterday and she always had to go to work. And I think she always got paid because of the fact she was deemed essential personnel. But tell us about you're obviously watching the news. You're getting ready to go into this thing. Kind of what are your initial thoughts about the shutdown and how it's going to impact you? Okay. I'm happy to share my experience with this caveat. Please raise your hand or flag me down if I talk too long because nothing's changed since college and I'm prone to go off for a while if you let me. The government is funded on the basis of annual appropriations. Congress sets a budget, the president agrees to it, and usually it's signed into law. The fiscal year that the government operates on ends in September, which means that a prudent budget mechanism would have a budget approved well before then. But for the past, gosh, I got to say eight or nine years, that hasn't been the case. And when the time passes such that there is no law allowing for money to be appropriated from the Treasury to be used for federal operations, we can't pay our bills. And government operations are supposed to stop because there's no way to fund those. That has happened in my 25-year career with the federal government at least four times. And focusing on the most recent, we learned as we were coming into the end of December that the appropriations were going to, set to expire on December 21st, a nice Christmas present for the country and for federal employees. And the 21st came, there were promises that a package would be signed, when I say package, a set of appropriation bills. And I hope I didn't get into too much mumbo jumbo there. But just from, from your perspective, though, so um, what are you thinking personally? Because you probably already knew at that point that you're going to be deemed non-essential personnel. Is that true? Oh, I'm, I'm very hurt by that, Mr. Blasco or Mr. Kramer, because in fact, a lot of employees were able to work or told to work in some cases through the furlough, even though there was no guarantee of pay or no active ability to pay. The standard was those people whose duties are necessary for the preservation of human life or security. And I work in a foreign affairs agency and some of my work was deemed essential. So for about half the time during the furlough, I dutifully marched in the work, although every other week we did not get paid for that. Yeah, so, so they're showing up. The distinction for the essential and the non-essential personnel is the non-essential didn't show up. The essential had to work, even though they weren't getting paid, adding insult to injury. 
I got you. you. And I didn't, I didn't mean any disrespect there. So I think I got those two things mixed up. So you had to go and work part of the time. So you're going in there. You're not getting paid. What's going through your head in the first few days of this thing? Well, as I said, this is the fourth time around, not my first rodeo. It was, here we go again. What's happened in the past is that it's been at worst a, a bump in the road because when there's been an interruption like this, employees, whether they were called in to work essentially or whether they were prevented from working because they couldn't, because their duties were not deemed essential. In the end, after the appropriations were restored, they were paid for the time that they would have worked. So in the end, everyone was made whole for the interruption due to work and due to the stoppage in work. So Steve, this one seems in some ways like it was more civilized than some of the previous ones because it was only a partial shutdown. It was something like a quarter of the agencies. Is that correct? This was actually a little more complicated. And now if I stray into politics, someone reach over and slap me and pull me back because there were about nine major agencies that were affected by this shutdown. However, several of the major agencies, major in terms of federal expenditures, remained, had already been funded and remained open during this period, most notably the Defense Department. This, for those of you who are politicos, might be interesting. When you have the prospect of our men and women in uniform stationed around the world defending America and yet not getting paid for it, that's a situation that moves politicians very quickly to resolve it. However, Congress and the President agreed to appropriate and fund the Defense Department months ago. So what instead was left at issue was a number of agencies that don't have the day-to-day impact or the emotional presence that the Defense Department does. So in fact, this was more complicated because there was less pressure to resolve it right away. So Steve, I was looking, I did some little research before we started and this, this was the longest shutdown we've had. I believe my sources are showing it 34 days, I think 35 days, some people would say, depending on you know when you start counting, if you will. And you've been through previous shutdowns, uh, but this was the longest one by far. I think the previous longest was under President Clinton at 21 days back in 1995. And that, there was a 17-day 17, 17 shutdown under President Carter way back in 1978. So I'm kind of curious, you've been through this before. It's not your first rodeo. Let's say, put yourself in your mind back in week two of this thing. So you're 14 days in. What are you thinking at that point? Well, at 14 days at that point, I was mentioning the political pressure and realizing that no one really seemed resolved, uh, determined to resolve this. And I thought we could really be in for a long haul. I was happy because at stage of my life, stage of my career, I could get through without any great inconveniences. We had money that we could move from savings um, pretty readily to our, handle our day-to-day expenses. We um, cut back on, actually we didn't cut back. We weren't going anywhere for the hol- Christmas holidays anyway. So we just continued to live life as we were. The toll for us was a little more psychological. I have teenage daughters, and they read and see everywhere in the news that, oh my gosh, the federal government's not working, people aren't getting paid, and they come home, Dad, are we going to go broke? 
Are we going to be able to stay in our house? I was happy I was able to reassure them, yes, because we had taken the steps ahead of time to start over the years, not spending all the money we had, socking some aside for some liquid funds in an account I could reach readily, while at the same time trying to save for longer-term retirement college funds and like that. So we in my family were luckily relatively unscathed financially, but the psychological questions, my wife, who's also a federal employee, was going crazy. She got a hold of that Marie Kondo book and started reorganizing everything in the house. And if we had left her a few more weeks, I think we would have had other problems besides just a furlough. The problem is that I see we, it's an, an, I think it's an American thing. Um, we wrap ourselves up a lot in what we do for a living, what our job is. And that comes to define a lot of us. Picture that suddenly for 35 days that is ripped away from you. And you don't have a place to go, a place where you're supposed to be, a place where your contributions matter. And that, people take that to heart. It's not just at the top secretary of whatever level. It's your um, mid-range analyst, your people who are charged with keeping buildings safe and keeping them clean. America have a sense of purpose. When you take that away from people, it hurts. So Steve, you're, does your wife work for the same agency as you do? She does not. I don't think there's any need to talk around it because it's getting kind of difficult to talk. I work for the State Department. My wife works for the Department of Homeland Security. So we were in different positions. My duties, oddly enough, do involve some foreign affairs matters that we had to keep going. So I was directed to come in and take care of a few things. Her work is more legalistic, and as a result, it could put, be put on the back burner. And she did not go into work. Well, she went into work one day because they had to pack up their office to move to another building. But other than that, she did not go in for that entire time. Well, that's a shame because one of the big advantages of, uh, or maybe one of the only advantages of having two uh, wage earners in the family is you have sort of a portfolio effect. So what are the chances of you both being out of work at the same time? Well, I guess if you work for the single biggest employer in the country, they're better now than I would have thought. Exactly. And that's one of the things that I wanted to be sure, and I'll hit it now, but I had wanted to be sure before we wrapped up, is for those who are working in public service, those who are in the federal government, this really is a time to evaluate where you stand. We may be in a new playing field, a new dynamic here. The government, traditionally, has offered a trade-off, and this is Steve Royster's opinion. The government offers steady stability in your job and a dependable role in doing something for the public good. The trade-off, especially for skilled employees, is that you don't get paid as much as people in the private sector. And you compare people who have the masters and economics degrees that some podcast hosts have, that what they are able to earn with what they pay in the federal government on the general services scale. It's not comparable, but it's a trade-off. And that's been something that the federal employee accepts. Now you're losing that degree of stability, that reliance on benefits. And I know in my household, we've been evaluating whether maybe this is an opportunity, an action-forcing event, as we would say in government talk, to consider whether we want to change that calculus, since the reliability 
of being a member of the federal workforce is not something that we may be able to count on in the future. Yeah, one of the big benefits, of course, is an excellent retirement package after a couple of decades, which I think is your position. You think we're going to see some brain drain as people with 20 and 30 years of experience decide it's not worth the risk, the, the benefits of public service? I wish I had something more insightful to say than yes, but you've hit the nail on the head there. There, you are changing the risk calculus, and that changes the options that we should consider, we should take as we're starting off in our careers or as we continue through them. What has been maybe changing if this dynamic between the way the government funds its services and the way that the people need the services the government provides the government provides continues. Enterprising employees may need to rethink what they're doing. One thing that struck me in the news coverage is I thought they were grotesquely underestimating the uh, the impact of on the economy, that the amount of wasted money was staggering. There was something like 400,000 employees, is that right, who did not report to work during the shutdown? I think that's I think that's right. What I can say is there were about eight hundred thousand who weren't paid, um, whether or not they reported. I'm not. Sh I don't have the four hundred thousand figure ahead of, in front of me, but that's consistent. But in in round numbers, because I, I ex estimate costs for a living. I'm a construction estimator. A person is worth about cost about a thousand dollars a day. So four hundred thousand people is $400 million a day. Over 30 days, that's $12 billion uh, just in no added value for the back pay, which had to be pay. Mm -hmm. uh, so aside from the fact that that money couldn't go into the economy, blah, 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 those people would have been doing something that added value, at least presumably the vast majority of them. And we're paying as taxpayers, including you, and not getting any value of it. It's uh, It's very upsetting that the people running the country pretend to be businessmen and can't do that kind of basic math. I don't mean to get share, you in trouble with I, your boss. I share my personal observations and noting that you raise a valid point, Mr. Kramer. So Steve, it sounds like, I mean, overall, um, you came through relatively unscathed because you're a planner, right? You're setting aside uh, dollars for different events and Relatively speaking, it sounds like you came through relatively unscathed, except for maybe the mental thought process of, "Hey, um, why?" You know, that you that you spoke about before. What are have you? I'm assuming. Um, what are your coworkers saying? Are, are they also kind of maybe rethinking that government calculus that you talked about? I think among the peers I've talked to, and it's not the kind of thing you talk about in work. Um, mm -hmm. Where where are you shopping your resume? That's not our coffee, um, coffee mm -hmm. room talk. I think for the most part, our employees, I'm really honored to be at the State Department, our employees are really dedicated and do it more. They've already given up the fact that they're not gonna make the big bucks consulting or in a think tank or in, a, in the corporate world. I think we're not gonna lose too many just on the basis of this. There are many other reasons that we're losing good people out of uh, the federal government this day, in this day and age. But what I hope, particularly younger employees take into account, is that they have to be responsible 
on a day-to-day basis, not just looking towards some retirement in the future or some planning, but the thing that hit the media in the Washington area was how so many employees are living paycheck to paycheck. And that's not a tenable way to be. You certainly can't do it when you are not certain that your company isn't going to go belly up or let you go in two weeks. And I hope that my fellow government employees realize that you also can't do it at the federal government because the fact that you're going to be paid on a steadily, steady basis that you can account on may not be there for the future. People, we, the people rose to such great lengths to support the federal government. In the um, D.C. area, I believe about one-sixth of the workforce is tied to the federal government directly. And people recognized that they weren't getting paid. A lot of people extended themselves. I had a friend who mailed me a Starbucks gift certificate. She's like, Steve, I know you're having a tough time not getting paid, but I just wanted to give you something to brighten your day and to help you with a cup of coffee to get through. That was really sweet of her. I appreciate that. I actually need to go find that gift certificate. I don't know where it is. But there were other even bigger, grander areas. People opened diaper banks because parents in the federal government were running out of money choosing between whether they were going to make the rent payment or have enough diapers to keep their kids safe and clean. A world-famous chef, Jose Andres, um, who has some high-class restaurants and some feeding projects around the world, opened a world kitchen in Washington and offered government employees free meals. I tried to volunteer, actually, to help distribute meals there. And the volunteer list was taken up for, filled for two or three weeks ahead of time. So not only by giving money, but by giving time, people recognized the toll this was taking and what the enterprising, up-and-coming federal employee eager to serve the uh, public need or looking for a nice, dependable job needs to realize that you need to think beyond the fact that the next paycheck is automatically going to be ahead because come the next appropriations time and the fiscal year ends in February. I'm sorry, this is February. The fiscal year ends every September. We could begin a new round of this shutdown furlough matter. The standard advice is is to have six months of cash for your expenses on hand in the bank or someplace easily accessible. that's a lot easier said than done, particularly when you live in uh, expensive housing areas uh, like the Bay Area or the D.C. area. Um, one thing people should do is, if you own a home, set up a, a home equity line of credit. Uh, they're not hard to get when you have a job and you've owned your house for a few years. They're impossible to get once you lose your job because no one is stupid enough to loan you money when you need it. That is a really exactly. great. That's a really great advice, Kramer, because um, that's what I've done, and that's my cash cushion, if you will, because I have college-age kids, and so my college fund money has been spent, and that was kind of my cushion as well for, as Steve was talking about, you know, rainy day fund, right? Having that cash cushion, so when my kids um, who are college age, one's done, one's still going through, when I, when I, um, time to tap that money, not really have it anymore, I went to the home equity line of credit. So really, that's a really great uh, piece of advice for folks. Or you could call uh, Wilbur Ross at home and ask if he'll loan you some money. <laughs> but, he has, but why would you ever need to take a loan during this? I don't understand that. 
and that joke is so much funnier in the early part of 2019 than it will be in a little bit because unfortunately in the normal news cycle of things we forget these things and that's why it's important to rem remember and learn the lessons we can from this experience and let's carry them forward so we keep the government funded and so that we take care of our personal finances as we need to along the way when we can't and it wasn't just federal employees it wasn't just the Washington DC area yeah you think of federal employees inside the Beltway but and this is my great stat for the day there are more federal employees in California than in the District of Columbia, in Maryland, or in Virginia. Now, you can call me on the percentages there. There are a lot more people in California there. But the point is that federal employees work around the country doing great things for American citizens. And there's second order effects as well that, man that show up wherever you are around the country. I was leaving was back. Oh, go ahead, please. It was uh, big in the news here. You know, there's a lot of, because of the wealth disparity around here, the, the food banks are very busy. Uh, I volunteered at Second Harvest a few times. They give out something like 2 million, maybe it's 6 million pounds of food every week. Um, I'll wow. double check that, but it's, it's, it's a stunning amount of food uh, that they uh, distribute. And they uh, made a point of how many Coast Guard personnel were signed up during that period. Uh, there's a big Coast Guard um, population out here trying to keep boaters safe and to keep drugs out of the country, and they were all working for free. Right. That was one of the low points as we watched the news coverage here in Washington where the Coast Guard commander blasted the situation that was sending a ship of his sailors out to sea without guarantee of getting paid at the same time that they were circulating newsletters within the Coast Guard suggesting that people hold bake sales or gar garage sales to get a little extra cash to tide them over. There was a real incongruity. And interestingly, for those who catch what, I can do the deep dive into the federal employee thing here, but the Coast Guard, while you might think of them as one of the armed services that would have been funded as we talked about, actually is now a component of the Department of Homeland Security which is why, although the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines continued funded and operating as normal, the Coast Guard was subject to the furlough. But that was at the, at the root of the problem, right, was that uh, the dispute was over the funding of the wall, which is under Homeland Security slash ICE, whatever agency it is. Um, yes, that I'm going to step aside from. That's, that's fine. Because, but, I'm just, I'm, because I'm more impressed with your advice about six months of a rainy day fund. And here's why. We have a financial planner. Not a bad idea for people. Um, the first few times we went to see her, she said, go back when you have enough money that we can actually do some planning. But in the last few years, she's given us some good advice. But one thing she wouldn't give us a firm answer on is how many months of, of savings should we have on hand? And there are a lot of different numbers out there. What do you guys think? I know Kramer threw out six months. I've always heard the six-month thing. I mean, having something is better than than nothing and, and Dave makes a good point I really like the, the HELOC is really a good point for people who have a home it's a good way to tap money as long as you don't tap it for things that are not important and but the HELOC the home equity line of credit uh, yeah okay I'll get me one of those thanks I th it's just a good way you know um, in my personal life my kids are 22 and 26 one's made it through college one's going through I have exhausted that college fund that I had, which was also college fund slash rainy day fund. 
And um, once I did that, I basically, like Dave's advice was, went out and got a home equity line of credit against the equity that has in my home, and that's my cash cushion. So if there was something that I needed um, cash in a short-term basis, that's better to have the money in the banks, but that's the second best kind of thing is to be able to tap on that home equity line of credit if you need it in the short term. Yeah, yeah what would be... What would be even better, this is easier said than done, but would be to live on 85% of your salary and sock 15% of it away. Um, that's even harder when you're married in a two-earner family because you have – It's uh, it, it pretty frequently happens. This is more for our younger listeners or if there are any. But if you're 25 making $25,000 a year and you marry someone who's also making 25000 a year, you both think – Huh, I now make $50,000. I can spend twice as much money. And you both run off writing checks. Exactly. And one of the dangers is just matching the perception with the reality. You, you don't double your buying power automatically like that. For younger people, and I've given this advice to some people who are starting off in the federal government, is to create an automatic deposit from your paycheck into a bank account that hopefully you'll forget. I actually did that with one account at some place I worked 20 years ago. I had been depositing $15 a week uh, pay period into it, and I lost the account, found it again, and there were several thousand dollars in there, which was pretty cool. And I have lost it again, but when I find it, there'll be even more money in it. And sometimes the money you never see is the money that I find, and I suggest it's easier for them to, for you to not spend. That, that's excellent advice. If you, that's the easiest way to make it a habit of spending money. And the best time to do that is if you are lucky enough to get an annual raise is to give your – the first time that happens, take the entire raise and put it into that account. That is good. That, that is good advice. advice. Yep. Hey, guys, do you know how much the federal government uh, – in that package, how much the – Federal government employees got a raise for the coming year? Uh, I believe the president said it was 11%. 1.9% is the figure that I saw. <laughs> that sounds close. about right. Yeah. Well, I am, first of all, I'm really glad that the three of us have had a chance to talk. I wish that I, we talked more frequently. I wish I spent more time in college hanging out with you guys. And I'm glad that we, in some way, have a chance to talk about these things, and all from a happy perspective. Up and down with, you know, kids driving us crazy, and my wife cleaning up the house all the time, and being furloughed and shut out of my office. We're still doing in good places. I hope that sharing some of this old man advice helps other people as well. Well, Steve, it was great catching up with you. Uh, I'm hoping we can have you back uh, again soon. Before we go... Um, I love podcasts and I love the art form. I'm glad I get a chance to at least pretend to make some. Um, is there a podcast that, that you like that you'd recommend to our listeners? Well, what I would love to do is to recommend the podcast that is currently only a concept between a collaboration between me and a friend here in Washington. And we were planning on just finding things in a relationship of three, like the three of us, for instance, but just based on the power of three, 
However, that doesn't yet exist. So if you're out there looking for something related, I would find anything, whether it's in the newspaper or her podcast appearances, by Michelle Singletary. She's a personal finance advice columnist for the Washington Post. And besides having a minor journalism crush on her, I think she gives excellent advice that's real world for people who are starting out and who are trying to figure out how to stay in control of their finances. Michelle Singletary. I'll send you a link. You can put it on your page. Well, that's great. Um, So this podcast, Dave Squared, has now been accepted to Google Podcast and Apple Podcast. Uh, If you have a chance, including you, Steve, if you could uh, search for Dave Squared, that's all spelled out, D-A-V-E-S-Q-U-A-R-E-D, and give us a a rating. Five stars are are always nice. And, And a review. That will help us move up in the ranks somehow so other people might be able to find this and get to hear your wisdom. Well, that's great. I'm going to really compliment you on your selection of guests. You're off to a great start. I will listen in and hope to stay in much better touch in the years ahead. Thanks, Steve. All right. Signing off. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.